October, Friday the 13th, 1989, Jimmy Wade Martin's body was found on a street in the small town of Bonterre, Missouri. When there are witnesses, a murder weapon, and a taped confession, how exactly does a murder become a cold case? This case has not ended by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of people in that town not going to You know, talk. rumor has it, it was... Big brawl, big bar fight. County jail. We have been, been working so hard on this. I can't be silent anymore. You know, like... You know that guy that got killed here last night? There was rumors going around, like, the next day. We started doing a lot with Facebook. The question is, what happened to Jimmy Wade Martin? From Blueburn Productions, this is Small Town Forgotten. I'm your host, Chris Halsey. My name is Angela Williams, and I am the daughter of Jimmy Wayne Martin Jr., who was murdered in 1989. And I'm asking, begging, pleading, if you have any information in regards to his murder, big or small, we have had um, some clues come to us that the person thought was irrelevant that is just another piece to the puzzle that we're trying to put together, and I just ask you to please come forward. I'm Andrea Lynn, and I'm also Jimmy's daughter. And like she said, if you think it's nothing a big deal, it could be just a little bit that we need to go off of. We have done a lot. We will continue to work. Please, if you have any information, it's not like that he got sick and died in the hospital. He laid on the side of the street and bled to death. If, if it were me, I don't think I could live with myself if I knew something. If you listen to our first episode, you'll remember that in 1989, the police arrested a man by the name of David Brian White. In the police report, it states that David had approached the police at the scene and let them know that he had witnessed the entire incident. The following day, it said that the police contacted him and David Brian White went to the police station. Whether with the police or of his own accord, it does not say. But he confessed and then he was arrested for the murder of Jimmy Wade Martin. What is not in the police report and what we know now is that David Brian White lived in Potosi, a town about a half hour to the west of Bonterre. He was unfamiliar with the town, the bar, and the people. He was a stranger. David Brian White was only in town that weekend for 17 hours before he was arrested for second degree murder. So this is the statement of David Brian White. And if you've noticed, it started at 1 p.m. and I think it's 17 minutes long for a murder. Thanks to the twins and their tireless research, we have the original report from David Brian White's interview with the St. Francis County Sheriff's Department. This transcript will be read by some longtime friends, Doug Newell and Nick Chernock. Present in the room today, the 14th day of October, 1989, at approximately 1 p.m. is David Brian White. 120 of 65, Sheriff Jack Cade, Sergeant Greg Armstrong, Patrolman Alan Goldsmith, and Investigator Phil Horn. David Brian White wishes to tell us today what incident that happened last night here in Bonterre. 
First, David, I'm going to read your Miranda warning because I am required to by law. Right? You have the right to remain silent. You understand that? You have to say yes each time if you understand, okay? So yes, you can hear, all right? You have the right to remain silent. Do you understand? Yes. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Do you understand? Yes, sir. You have a right to talk to a lawyer and have him present with you while you're being questioned. Do you understand? Yes, sir. If you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you before any questioning if you wish. Understand? Yes, sir. You can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not to answer any questions to make any statement. Having underread all these rights, do you wish to talk to us now? Yes. Okay, David. Now, what we're talking about is what happened last night here in Bonterre at what time was it? About one? About one this morning? An incident that happened here in Bonterre. Could you go ahead and tell us about that? Yes, I was walking down North Division Street. I was walking home to my mother's house on Spruce. There was a little bar right there on the street with a gray door on it. And there were a whole bunch of people standing outside of that bar. And there were two girls fighting. And two girls. There's a guy involved in on the fight trying to break that fight up. And there was a bunch of other guys, you know, provoking the fight and making it happen. And the guy that tried to break it up was trying to get all these other guys to leave these two drunk girls alone and stop getting them all to fight. Well, he got jumped on by a couple of guys, and they just kept beating the crap out of him, beating on him and beating on him. He was all curled up in the street, and he kept telling them, you know, I, I do not want to do this anymore. And so I stopped, told them that he had enough, and leave him alone. Stop. And I kept telling them, so they all came after me. Three of them did. I took off running. The one that was second, you know, uh, the one that was second to last one, they were like running like a trail of three. The last one turned around. The other two kept chasing me just because I asked them to stop, man, and I, I was scared. One guy had a baseball bat or something, and I asked Mr. Goldsmith last night if they found it. They kept coming and chasing me, and there was a stick in these people's yard or driveway or something. You said a stick. Was it a pretty good-sized piece of timber? Was that what it was? Yeah. And I picked it up, and I started to swing it around in circles, trying to get them away from me. And I hit the one guy that was leading it, and he fell down, and the other guy took off running the one with the baseball bat. And I dropped the stick. I was scared. He was bleeding. I took off running home, and I told my mom, and I tried to call down here, and they gave me the 431 phone number. I couldn't get a hold of nobody. I took and ran back to see if he was okay. God, I'm so fucking scared. Okay. Now, do you know where you were when this was happening, about the time you picked up the stick and was hitting this other man? I don't know the name of the street. I'm not a, from around here. Well, I, I am from around here, but I'm not familiar with the streets. Can you give us an idea how you went when you left the bar? I turned left, then a right on the first street, and then I went through a yard. I can't remember. I think I went through a yard and to the next street over closer to my mom's. Okay. So what you're saying is that you went out on the street that comes out of the bar? No, I wasn't in the bar. I was outside the bar. 
And I, I made a left right there on the side of the bar. Okay, that would have meant that you were going east on that side. I'm not sure if it was east. But it would be going away from your mom's house. Right, away from my mom's house. And then you went through a yard. Right, I went through a yard. And then on to the next street, which would have been, what's his name? Mounds. Mounds. Mound Street. Does that sound familiar? I don't know what the name of it is. Okay. Second one after the bar. Second street up from the bar. On the left. On the left there, okay. So then you were down where? At, on the street about this time. Do you remember? Right at the end of the street. So down close to Division Street, would it be? Right. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so right there on Division Street and Mound Street, maybe, what, one house up or two houses up? Couple houses up. Couple houses up. There was what? A piece of timber lying there? Yes. It was laying there? Laying on the side there. I cannot remember if it was in the driveway or on the yard itself. So you picked a piece of timber up? I picked it up and started swinging it around in circles, and I just started spinning around in circles, telling them to get away from me. Yeah. And then what happened? Then he was, like, trying to come in at me, <laughs> swinging around in circles, like, you know, like jumping in at me when it got away from him. And the one guy jumped at it, and he was standing on the side of me over the here. And I came around like this, and I hit him. You know how many times you hit him, Dave? Just a couple of times, and he kept coming. Uh, a couple, <clears throat> a couple, or maybe four or five. How many? About two times. About two times. Okay. Then what happened? He fell to the ground. Fell down on the ground or sidewalk or in the road? On the sidewalk. On the sidewalk. And the other guy took off running. The other guy who was with him? With the baseball bat. Yeah, he took off running. Okay. Then, uh, okay then. Then you did what? Ran home and called the police. What did you do with the timber that you had? I threw it down in the yard. Throwed it down in the yard, right there, close to the area. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then you ran home and told your mom? I ran home, told my mom, and I called the police. Uh, and from there, what happened? I went back down to where it happened at because he was bleeding and I wanted to see if he was okay. I was, you know, scared and it seemed so weird. And then I got there, two police cars were already here, and I went up and started talking to Mr. Goldsmith about it. He was really busy, so I had to wait until today to do it all over again. Well, do you have anything else you want to add to it, David? This is basically what happened. Basically what happened. Okay, now... I haven't made you any promise, you know, or I haven't beat on you or anything like that, have I? No. No? No. 
Okay. Because I have, I have to, and I can if if I can't do this, I haven't slept all night, and I. So. They were going to jump on me. So the reason you're doing this is to clear your conscience and to get it all out in the open, right? Yeah. Okay. Now I need to ask you a couple questions, okay? Before the fight at the bar, you know, when you were coming up the street before you were there? Let's see, before I was there, I was just walking around. I was at my little brother's. Your little brother's. Who is he? Where does he live? Up on the street, right across from that mushroom place right there. He lives in the little wide apartment on there. Summit Street. Summit Street. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Yes, I think it's that. Do you know what time you left there? It was pretty early because after that I went down to this other girl, this girl's house, and there were a couple of people down there, a guy named Jim. I met him through Alcohol Anonymous out at the Aquinas Center. Had you been drinking anything last night or taking any kind of drugs or anything? Yes, but not enough to not know what was going on. Yes. You say yes. Was there alcohol or drugs? Alcohol. Alcohol. Drinking what? Whiskey? Beer? We drank a six-pack between the four of us and I uh, had a couple shots, small shots of whiskey. Okay, so maybe a couple beers and a couple of shots of whiskey? Two beers and like two shots of whiskey. So you wouldn't have been drunk or anything at that time then? You wasn't high on any medications or anything? No, not until afterwards. Afterwards I got drunk. When I was trying to find out what was going on with him and what hospital he was in and, and his name because I went to the hospital to find out where he was at. And I went in the hospital and the doctor told me, the doctor was working on him, told me that he was died, and I passed out. Go back again one more time to the time where you were swinging that timber. How many times you figure you'd hit him with the timber? Or how many times he run into the timber or whatever? Total times that he... He just ran and jumped into me, you know? I just picked it up when I fell down, and that's how they got so close to me because I fell down. While you was running. Uh-huh, because there's a sidewalk there, and you had to jump on the sidewalk, you know, and that, that is what I tried to do, and I, I fell down, and they come up on me, you know, and I grabbed that. So, was all... I was swinging it around me, and they were both trying to get into me, you know, like waiting for that opening, and he just jumped in there a couple times. So maybe... And when I hit him, that one time, I think I only hit him twice, you know. I hit him that one time, and he said, you son of a bitch, like... Like that, and he said, hit me, motherfucker, then he jumped in after me, and I hit him again, and he fell down, and the other guy took off running, and I dropped the stick, and I was looking at him. So maybe at least twice, maybe, maybe a couple more times while they was running to get in you on you, you reckon? I, I don't know, maybe it might, when I was spinning it around, it might have, I don't know, I, I know it hit him twice that I know of for sure. Okay. Do you have anything else you'd like to add to this? They were drunk as hell to, to do that, you know, to sit there and want to do that, you know, to want to beat on someone like that and not stop. And the guy was begging them to stop and they go chasing to chase me because I tell them to stop. 
So do you have anything else you'd like to add for us, David? Or is that basically what happened? That is what happened. You don't have anything else that you'd like to add to it right now? Okay, my time now, according to my watch, is about 1.17 on the 14th day of October, 1989. That is 1.17 p.m. Tape is now closed, end of. That's a lot to digest, isn't it? David Brian White is visiting Bonterre. He's 5 feet 11 inches tall, 140 pounds. He walks by a bar and tries to stop a fight and ends up being chased down an unfamiliar street by three strangers. He picks up a piece of timber and he's swinging it around to protect himself. He admits to striking a man twice with the timber. Is he a murderer? First, I want to bring to your attention all of the locations that are being mentioned, both in the police report and in the interview with David Brian White. I could go to these streets of Bonterre tomorrow and walk through what happened in my head, but perhaps you can't. I recommend instead, go to Google Maps and put in the cross streets of Mound and Division, Bonterre, Missouri. That's pretty much where Jimmy Wade's body was found. And we can be sure, considering that that's where the landscape timber ended up, that that's where David Brian White had his fight. To the north is Division and Vine Street, and if you're looking at Google Maps, with the satellite, you'll see an empty parking lot on the northeast corner. That's where the Coal Bin Tavern used to be. David Bryan's mother lives on Spruce Street to the west, and David Bryan's brother lives on Summit Street to the east. Now, according to David Bryan White, that night he was walking from his brother's house on Summit Street to his mother's house on Spruce Street and walked past the Coal Bin Tavern. Now, that doesn't seem uncommon to me, you have to remember, Bonterre is not that big. Now, go to Google Street View. Go back to Mound and Division Street and go a couple houses up Mound. Take a closer look at the sidewalk. You'll notice that the sidewalk steps up on the south side of the street. You can see where David Brian White stumbled on the lip of the sidewalk and fell, letting the pursuers catch up. Notice the proximity of the houses to the sidewalk. They're pretty close. Close enough, I think, to hear that something is happening outside. And close enough to see what is happening outside. David Brian White also describes three men chasing him. And the witness in the police report also stated that three men were chasing him. So that all checks out. And one of the men chasing David Brian, he said had a baseball bat. Remember how we said in the first episode that blow-off steam fighting has a certain etiquette of just using your fists? Well, why did someone have a baseball bat to pursue David Bryan? Did the police question that person? Did they even know who that person was? We had went to the crime scene and met someone who knew exactly where it happened. And we were just looking around you know and that evening it just seemed to get me more motivated so I was like I am just gonna contact everybody because on Facebook I couldn't determine who he was but I think he had more than one Facebook account right. so I just start messaging people finally his sister 
answered me that night, actually, because normally it takes forever for someone to answer me. And she's like, let me just get you in contact with his daughter. So, didn't she tell you, though? Because you called me and you're like, you're never going to believe this. That David White's sister said, all I know is that my brother passed out because he thought he killed someone. And so then it kind of put in perspective what, you know, she had, she said that's the only thing that bothered her. And you think about it, if you hit someone and you thought you killed them, you probably would pass out. You know, your life is over. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what to think about all this. Do you think David Brian White could be lying about anything? I mean, I can't figure out why you would. He said he tried to stop a fight. He reached out to the police in the first place. He tried to call the police. He went to the hospital to see if the man he thought he hit was okay, and then he passed out when he found out that he wasn't. There has to be more information, right? If he confessed and he didn't even go to trial, what happened? Did he change his story? The Small Town Forgotten Podcast is brought to you by Nukes Hot Sauce. Nukes Hot Sauce, an all-natural hot sauce company based out of Portland, Oregon. Spice up your meals with any of our four hot sauce flavors, ranging from mild, medium, to ultra-hot. Nukes has got you covered. Try us out. www.nukesauces.com Use code SMALLTOWN for 10% off your order. N-E-W-K-S-Sauces.com Code SMALLTOWN As I promised in the last episode, I'm going to read you the coroner report and parts of the autopsy. Please be advised that the descriptions in this section may be upsetting. The coroner report is a one-page document labeled Coroner's Report. Jimmy Wade Martin Jr., date of death, October 14, 1989, cause of death, blunt trauma with depressed skull fracture and cerebral contusion. And then below these facts is a paragraph that states, The investigation of death of said Jimmy Wade Martin Jr. was handled by the Bonterre Police and St. Francis County Sheriff's Department. Coroner Ted Booyer was out of state at the time of death. The death certificate was completed on the findings available from the autopsy. Copies of the autopsy report and police report from the Bonterre City Police Department are attached. Ted Booyer, Coroner, St. Francis County. This is the autopsy, and it shows like, on some of it, it shows like the, um, the wounds. There's like I'll, a diagram. I'll hold it up close. Okay, so they can see. I don't know if you guys can see this, but that is the, um, the wound, there was, it says there's A, which is this way, um, a and C are this way, B goes this way, and then D was the one from behind the, the head. The autopsy report is six pages long. You'll be able to see a copy on the website soon. It is very thorough concerning Jimmy Wade's physical state at his death, but we will omit the parts that are not relevant to the murder. I'll only read the statements that relate to his mortal injuries. 
The beginning of the autopsy states Jimmy Wade's name, age, and date of the autopsy, which was October 16, 1989. Please note that Jimmy Wade was killed on Friday night or early Saturday morning, but his autopsy was not done until Monday at 8.15 a.m. The autopsy was done at the Mineral Area Regional Medical Center Morgue in Farmington, Missouri, and it is stated on the autopsy that authorization was given by Jack Cade, Sheriff, Acting Coroner, St. Francis County. If that sounds familiar, that's because he was the sheriff who interviewed David Brian White. Pathologic Diagnosis Manner of Death, Homicide, Cause of Death, Multiple, Four, Blunt Trauma to the Cranium with Depressed, Comminuted Fractures, and Cerebral Contusion. Okay, I have to be honest. I didn't understand this sentence, so I had to look it up. A comminuted fracture is a type of break in a bone when the bone is shattered, and a depressed comminuted fracture is a bone that is shattered inward. A cerebral contusion means that the brain was injured. After the summary, there is a paragraph that is labeled history. It reads as such. After an altercation in a Bonterre bar, one of the participants fled afoot with the deceased pursuing him. At some point, the pursued man stopped, picked up a 4x4, 4-foot piece of landscaping timber, and struck the assailant on the head. There were other possible witnesses who have not been apprehended. Skull x-rays and a chest and cervical film taken at the Mineral Area Regional Medical Center morgue on early Saturday morning, 10-14-89, indicated multiple fractures of the skull and facial bones. No abnormalities of the cervical spine and possible contusions to the upper lungs. These were apparently taken during the resuscitation effort. According to David Brian White's interview, he was never inside the bar, so there was at least one discrepancy between the interview and the autopsy report. The autopsy lists all the body parts and describes their state of health, but we're mainly concerned with the head, of course, so we will read everything that is written under that subject line. But first, as the twins mentioned earlier, there is a picture or diagram that is included with the report. And on this diagram is the human body from the torso up. And there are three drawn shapes on the forehead with the letters A, B, C labeling each one. And then in the space in the margins, there is the letter D and the words in left scalp. Head. There are numerous injuries to the head. A. Just lateral to the midline on the forehead is a deep laceration, somewhat linear and 5.7 centimeters in length. The skull and fractures exposed below. The gape of the defect is 0.9 centimeters. The wound is undermined to the right and shows irregular lacerations lateral to the linear large laceration. B. In approximately the midline slightly to the left is a second curvilinear deep laceration, which is 4.3 centimeters in transverse length and 1 centimeter in gaping dimensions. It is sharp superiorly and again exposes multiple underlying skull fractures. C. 
at the lateral canthus of the left eye superior to that of both the forehead and over the forehead is a 5.8 by 1.7 centimeter laceration, also exposing skull and fractures with each of these wounds showing some peripheral abrasion. The last wound is sharp left laterally. Thus, wound A was struck from left to right, wound B was struck superior to inferior, and wound C was struck from left to right. A fourth wound is present over the left occiput. It is dovetailed posteriorly, runs somewhat tangential from the ineon toward the top of the left ear, and is 5.4 centimeters. It is underdetermined anteriorly and superiorly, and is also exposes the skull bone with no obvious underlying fracture. Remember from junior high, the basic questions of information gathering? You know the five W's and one H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. I want to walk through these questions with the information that we have up to this point. Let's start with the who. The police believe that David Brian White is the who. And that seems completely credible considering he gave a taped confession. But we also know that he was never convicted. So obviously that cast doubt on the narrative as we know it. And then there's the what. Well, that's clear enough. The murder of a 29-year-old father and husband, Jimmy Wade Martin. When? Well, based on when the police were called, the altercation happened late October 13th, and Jimmy died hours later on October 14th. Where? We do know that Jimmy Wade's body was removed from a sidewalk on Mound Street close to the intersection of Division. But why? And that's it. That's the question that stops me in my tracks. Why did David Brian White kill Jimmy Wade Martin? Based on his remarks in the interview, he never intended to kill him. In fact, he was being charged with second-degree murder, a designation that just means the murder was not premeditated, that it was the result of reckless behavior and disregard for human life. Based on his interview, why wasn't the charge manslaughter? Were David Bryan's lawyers pleading innocent by reason of self-defense? But there is more than that. Jimmy Wade's behavior in David Bryan White's telling of the story now, don't get me wrong, I have heard Jimmy Wade described as a hellraiser. I know he's been in fights, but I've also been told that he was a charmer and that he was a man full of life and who liked being liked. And Jimmy Wade was going after someone who is essentially a stranger in town, threatening him, someone who is clearly scared and wielding a large landscaping timber doesn't track for me. And then there's the how. How did David Brian White manage to swing in circles a four foot long landscape timber or four by four and manage to hit a man three times in the same place on his forehead at night? Not to mention the wound on the back of Jimmy's head. What is also perplexing to me is that no one in the police report actually witnessed David Brian White hit Jimmy Martin even though Jimmy 
and two other men were allegedly chasing David. All of this, and David Brian White doesn't even know who Jimmy Wade Martin is. Maybe it's just me, maybe I'm reading into it too much, but there are definitely facts about this case that don't mesh. It's just weird. I, it's hard to explain the just the emotional roller coaster that you know. And then just sitting there and you know, you always. I don't know if I was told or if I tell myself that you know he didn't suffer. And then you. Read. That was the biggest thing for me. My whole life since I was eleven, I'm like, mm-hmm. at least he didn't suffer. At least he didn't suffer. That was a lie, because he suffered a lot, a lot more than I ever knew, and that, it, that hurt, that was deep. What's up, True Crime Podcast listener? Hope you're enjoying Small Town Forgotten, a podcast that takes place in my hometown of Bonterre, Missouri. Whenever you need a break from the true crime genre, Come on over and see us at Mostly Superheroes, a podcast that discusses TV and film, old and new, things like Airplane or Game of Thrones. We talk about it all. Come see us at MostlySuperheroes.com and listen where you get your podcast. Enjoy the rest of the show. The coroner's report is very kind of bland compared to Dr. Zarekor's statement um, in the preliminary hearing so we kind of knew a little from the coroner's report but his testimony told the rest of the story Um, but what we do know is he had four total lacerations one of them being on the back part behind the head like behind the left ear Um, the second was a horizontal skull fracture and two vertical um, injuries. I don't know if they, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think there was two fractured, two fractures, but four blows. Um, Dr. Zarekor said that no one could sustain life after the horizontal. That was, um, they called, do you remember, Andrea, they called it, there were, it's labeled on the coroner's report, A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. And so they did know from, they didn't know if the one on the back of the head happened first, but they did know the horizontal one across his forehead happen first before the two verticals because he said that it was the way his skull was fractured it was if the two verticals would have happened first it would have affected the horizontal but the horizontal had no um do you remember what the horizontal one happened first and that's one that they said was the the killing blow and he also didn't have defensive wounds, which he said that was odd. Now this is the part where I tell you that I am not an expert. So full disclosure, I am not an expert. 
I don't even play one on TV or a podcast. And because I'm not an expert, I thought it was important that we spoke to someone who is. Remember how I said everyone knows everyone in Bonterre? Okay, Dr. Zerkor. Mm. Okay, this is my cousin Chris who's helping me. He's he, I added him to the call. Okay. Hello, Dr. Zerkor. Hello. Hey, I, I really appreciate you talking to us. I'm glad to do it. What can I help you with? So, obviously, Andrea is my cousin, and we are working on documenting via a podcast and working on a documentary film about their quest for finding justice for their father's murder. Let's talk and hear what you want, what okay. you need to know. Well, have, have you had a chance to review the report that you did, or do you remember yes. the specifics? Andrea and I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Zaracor. He's the pathologist who did Jimmy Wade Martin's autopsy and who the twins were talking about in reference to the preliminary hearing. Andrea was able to reach out to him through someone she met at her hair salon. Yep, you heard me right, at her hair salon. Because everyone knows everyone or knows someone who knows someone. We were really excited that he agreed to talk to us. He's retired now and of course does not remember the specifics of the case. It was 31 years ago, but he has the autopsy report, and he agreed to look at it before we spoke with him. Could you Mm -hmm. um, state your name and who you are and how you're related to the case? Michael DeWitt Zarekar, D.O. I'm a retired pathologist from Mineral Area Regional Medical Center. Uh, At the time of the autopsy, I did forensic pathology for most of the counties in southeast Missouri and was asked by Ken Buckley, the acting coroner and sheriff at the time of St. Francis County to do the autopsy, which was done, was it October 16th of uh, 1989? That's right. Just looking at it, does the report tell you anything? Does does anything seem odd, or what what does the report tell you when you look at it? Well, it tells me that he was struck with a heavy object four times, once on the back of the head and three times to the forehead. Any one of those could have knocked him unconscious. And in fact, that's probably what happened. I would say he was hit in the back of the head first. Uh, probably was not unconscious. And then they hit him three more times from the front, probably while he was down. I see no signs that he tried to protect himself at all. You know, if, if you got your hands up to avoid the blow, you'd have all sorts of injuries to the arms or hands. Saw none of that. So, so my impression was that he was unconscious when the last three blows were struck. In your opinion, if I don't know if you can remember the wounds specifically or if the description of the wounds tells you the the weapon that was used, do you think it would would have been because there's several reports. One is a baseball bat, one is a four by four, one is a landscape timber. 
does it, uh, does it appear that it was something that had sharp corners, or could it would a baseball bat produce these wounds? Or is yes, it, it could. Is it more likely that it would be a baseball bat or a landscape timber or a four by four? Is that something you could say? You know, only in in how difficult it would be to wield it. Uh, I don't think it was a square piece of wood. I think it had curved margins, judging from the wounds on the scalp. Rounded, rounded margins, but a landscape timber fits that. But a baseball bat is certainly an option. Thank you. You have no idea how much this means to me. Well, you know, I hope it helps. You know, I don't. I hope I'm still around if you can get this to court. But I'm yeah, sure right. if not, I think the autopsy report and the preliminary hearing they could use, and that would be probably all you need. Dr. Zaracor was very frank with us. He wasn't aware that there was almost a trial and then it was dismissed. He did not know David White's story of swinging the landscape timber. What was helpful, I thought, was knowing that in his estimation and expert opinion, that Jimmy Wade Martin was hit in the back of the head and knocked unconscious, and then hit three times on the forehead while he was unconscious. Andrea and I, of course, thanked him for his time and his knowledge and for agreeing to play his interview on the podcast. But if he's listening right now, I'd like to thank him again. His time meant a lot to me and so much to the twins. You understand, I'm sure, as clearly as I do, what his conclusions would mean, though. Either David Brian White is lying about how he hit Jimmy Wade Martin, or he never hit Jimmy Wade Martin at all. I had someone recommend me call the Crime Victims um, Advocate Hotline, and I did. And I remember the lady saying, there is nothing you can do as a victim. And my thought was, you wanna bet. Because if you're not gonna help me, and we can't get anybody to help us, I guess we're gonna have to do it on our own. And we know there are lots of secrets out there. And just remember, what you do in the dark will come to light. And it is all coming to light. I started out our first episode by thanking everyone for listening, and I meant it. I say it now, and I mean it. And every time I say it in the future, I'll mean it. Every person who is a part of Small Town Forgotten is thankful for each and every one of our listeners. The twins, Andrea and Angela, the daughters of Jimmy Wade Martin, are thankful. I know and they know with every listener there is a better chance of finding justice for Jimmy Wade. With every listener, there is a better chance of helping those that are afraid to talk, to come forward, because those people will know there is an army of listeners who are behind them. Next time on Small Town Forgotten. Who is Jimmy Wade Martin? Right, right go out the door, I get a, a phone call, collect phone call from Jim. And uh, he said, I don't know what it is, but I just got to tell you how much I love you. And I said, I know, I said, but I'm a, I got to go, you know, I'm on my way to work. Click, phone rings again. Another click, call, phone call from him. He's like, I just got to tell you again how much I love you. He said, and don't ever forget it. 
Small Town Forgotten is presented by Blueburn Productions, writer and executive producer Vanessa Martin, creative and executive producer Ashton Holsey, director and executive producer Sean Lee Martin, and myself, produced in association with Vagrant Media Productions. Brett Wiley, Jake Delaloy, Caleb Cook, podcast distribution and digital strategy by Logan Janis with Kerrigan Ventures, original music written and performed by Todd Holsey. For more information, please visit smalltownforgotten.com. Please like, follow, subscribe on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Special thanks to the twins, Andrea and Angela, for their inspiring perseverance. I'm your host, Chris Holsey. Thanks for listening to Small Town Forgotten.